Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. The coronavirus continues to be the top story of the year with now close to 10 million cases worldwide, half a million deaths, a quarter of all cases occurring right here in the United States, where now 29 states are seeing their new daily cases rise especially in some of the warmer states, Arizona, Texas, California. So, so much for warm weather and sunlight doing the trick. The highest percent change among states from two weeks ago for new daily cases is Oklahoma, where the president held a rally for thousands of people this past weekend. It's also been exactly a month today since the Memorial Day murder of George Floyd, which has brought national attention again to issues of police brutality, racial injustice, the need for criminal justice reform at minimum, and perhaps some are saying even defunding the police, given all the violence here in America that uh, the police seem to instigate, including the use of violence at peaceful protests the past few weeks. Meanwhile, restaurants are back here in Philadelphia uh, for outdoor seating, at least. Uh, The NBA and Major League Baseball have announced plans to play games without fans beginning next month. And when we talk about June, there's always the weather. It's goddamn beautiful outside. So lots to talk about, climate change, and so much more. So I can think of no better person to reflect with on the current moment than our next guest. She is a living legend here in the Philadelphia region for her work advising local government and transportation agencies, a city planner, an educator, a pioneer for black business leaders, female business leaders, small business leaders, the president of Portfolio Associates, which she founded in the 1960s before my parents had even met my boss, Beverly Harper. But first, Beverly, but first, we've got to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Roland Cases, the Moserakin suitcases on wheels, Roland Cases. Whether you're taking a red eye back from Sarasota to sign those invoices, or you're just packing it, packing it with groceries at the West Philly Aldi's because you don't want to waste no more plastic bags. Roll-in cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Roll-in cases. And with that, ladies, gentlemen, listeners, old and new, I bring you my boss, Beverly Harper. Beverly, welcome on to the program, Climate Change Therapy, an honor and a privilege to have you with us this afternoon. Well, thank you for all of those accolades. Hopefully I can live up to them. I certainly enjoy our uh, daily uh, conversations that sometimes stray away from the business and into the real world. But of course, I believe business is the real world. Hi, hi, hi. Uh, is there anything that I missed among those accolades and in the introduction? Uh, do you want to maybe introduce yourself for our listeners? Well, I will add uh, one thing to your introduction, and then I'll do a little uh, a little bio. Um, the one thing to add to your introduction is that I am a, a strong advocate of culture organizations in the formal sense and that is supporting those organizations that uh, provide an organized cultural outlet 
to individuals from the very small, such as the Painted Bride and Philodanko, to the very large, the Philadelphia Orchestra and the Kimmel Center. On those four institutions, I've been on their board, I've chaired some of the boards, and have uh, certainly contributed um, financially to them. Excellent. Well, thanks again for, for being on. Yeah, you're certainly uh, most, maybe the, one of the most accomplished guests on this program. I don't want to sell short the, uh, the frontline hospital workers during this pandemic that we had uh, on last week. Um, but uh, all right, Beverly, my boss. Let me ask you the first question that I ask everyone who comes on this program. But how often do you think or discuss climate change uh, in your everyday life? And I know that the answer now will be different than maybe it was, or maybe maybe not, before and after um, this quarantine and the coronavirus struck and kind of became the immediate health concern on everyone's mind. Um, well, I, I think for me, climate change um, comes up kind of or, organically, you know, when some big climate um, uh, activity happens, such as a, a flood or hurricane or something like that, it becomes the, the topic of a discussion. The, one of the more recent um, uh, thoughts that I've had, and I'm sure others have had, I know others have had also, is that the um, global shutdown of human activity all over the world has affected the uh, the climate? I mean, we have seen a we have seen a, a change, and I think that once we get around to talking about other things, that uh, we will remember that dur- during this time period that we did bend, bend the curve in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of the, uh, you know, emissions going into the air and the ultimate uh, effect on climate. We don't really know what that, that's gonna be right now, but we do know that the air has been cleaner. It has uh, looked different, it has felt different, and not just here, but all over. And so I think that what that did what that does is that it says that human activity can make a difference in a very short period of time if we all have if we have the right incentive to do that. And I wouldn't like the incentive to always be something like uh, um, the coronavirus, but COVID nineteen. But I do think that that will let people know that it is possible to change the trajectory that we were on. Yeah, and it'll certainly be a very interesting case study for scientists. Um, Since every year has been hotter than the last on record, it'll be fascinating to see that when will we kind of see the effects of that in terms of um, actual, actual average temperature. Um, because this was an all like a low for emissions, uh, generational low for emissions, will we see the effects of that on temperature next year, in five years, in 10 years? So it'll give scientists a, a barometer for exactly the, the, the 
the the temporal re relationship between emissions reductions and and temperature reduction. I think um, in terms of clean air, we saw, and I think that it's you know one of the um, uh, one of the the faults or the the limits of the media that we have is that um, they only seem to be able to uh, discuss one thing at a time, maybe two things at a time, but there's certainly the platforms to let us see in real time the difference that this has made by getting rid of the emissions. Yeah. Um, do you remember, there was a, I was watching a comedy skit the other, the other night where someone was saying now, now the news is 24 seven and the news, it used to be half an hour a day. And that was, turns out that that was a, kind of all the news that there was. <laughs> it's about half an hour <laughs> and now we're just filling time. Um, but do you remember a time like, like how was climate change covered on the news or environmental news covered at all um, back in the, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s? I, I, I don't, um, I don't remember specifically, but I, you know, I think that the only, the way that it was covered is a lot related to what happens today is that if there was some big uh, climate um, activity, then it would be, you know, that would take up a tiny portion of the the news, um, but when when you say that the uh, you know the half hour uh, newscast, and that's that's true, but there were other ways that people got information. I think that there were there were more substantive conversations uh, uh, between people, um, like Edward R. Merrill used to have this. Uh, you know, show that was that was on where he interviewed people and actually went into people's homes and and it was I don't know whether it was a half hour or an hour show. Um, Dick Cavett was another one who had very interesting guests on. So you got to hear about the world and the news in other formats other than just this half hour segment with these rapid sort of rapid fire. Let's try to cover everything. There were other ways that you heard things. And then, of course, people read. Mm -hmm. And there were newspapers. And then, of course, there were podcasts. People probably missed those shows, those long conversations. Um, so now we have this to, to compensate for the... the yeah, sometimes, sometimes I think that the 24-hour uh, news that that we have since there's so much repetition it could be condensed into an hour and then mm -hmm. we could go on to do more um enlightening and substantive conversations yeah a lot of the news stories seem to be about what people say like almost 90 percent of the stories it's you know the president tweeted this and then this person said something about the president's tweet or this person tweeted this about someone else's tweet, or this person reacted to this reaction. And it's really more gossip than reporting on things happening. 
Well, to me, that has happened in the last five seconds. <laughs> uh, when I look back on information and news, certainly for most of my life, uh, there were there was no Twitter. Mm-hmm. So to me, that is a very um, temporary phenomenon. And as soon as people um, uh, stop abusing it, it might turn into something useful. But in the whole scheme of things, that's like a nanosecond in time. Mm-hmm. What about the mainstream news networks? Was it has it always been this divided? Like right now you have Fox News on one side, MSNBC maybe on the other side. Was it always this divided or was it kind of there was you had the Philadelphia Inquirer and you could always trust that? Well, there was the Inquirer, the um we did have another major newspaper, the uh Bulletin. Um and the I think all of the news was biased in terms of their ignorance of things. Um, And by that, I mean that we did not, we never got the um, real story about um, enslaved people. I mean, they pushed the, um, the narrative of this country and its leaders they pushed the narrative in a very limited way. And I, I, you know, just to tie it to um, some of the things that are going on now in terms of uh, tearing down monuments and statues, I think that part of the tearing down should be, we should consider that an opportunity for education. And that whenever there's, you know, the Columbus statue that's all over the place, all over the country, really, and um, tell the story of, uh, it's so interesting to know that the, a lot of Italian Americans are uh, disturbed because the statue is being torn down when actually Columbus was funded by Spain, Mm -hmm. you know, to come to the Americas. So that's, you know, like an interesting, uh, an interesting little thing. And say so he certainly was a, um, and not different from uh, others of his time, uh, abused uh, the Native Americans and enslaved people and others. I, I, I've actually, I've missed this. I, I've been working so so hard on our accounts, Beverly. Can you kind of just uh, update That's me on what's going on? Me, <laughs> it's not going to get me. All right. Well, no. can you uh, then let's say update me maybe for the listeners to what's going on right now with the Columbus statue in, in, in Philadelphia? Well, there was a, a group of the protesters who wanted to tear it down. And um, there was a group of people who did not believe it should be torn down. And so there was, a, you know, some minor skirmishes. I wouldn't even call them major con- confrontations. And now the city is um, trying to decide what it's going to uh, do with the statue. But I, I think that drawing attention to, um, drawing attention to um, 
individuals who enslaved people, certainly the Confederate leaders who have been um, honored uh, for uh, generations and generations when they were the ones who um, sought to d destroy the Union. I, I just find that so um, such, such an interesting dichotomy that here we are with parts of the country willing to celebrate people who want to tear down the, who wanted to um, destroy the Union. And today you have protesters who are saying some of the institutions, the police, uh, you know, there's change needed there. So they, on one hand, they're willing to celebrate people who killed mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of people and advocated for enslaving people and their heroes. But today the uh, protesters are, uh, you know, are looters and other uh, unfortunate words that's used for them. Mm -hmm. I want to get to the protest uh, in a second, but just while we're still on the subject of monuments. Um, so how do you see that question about whether we should take down certain monuments? Um, and maybe we can cite two examples. Um, the Rizzo statue, which was, was taken down in front of the municipal services buildings after the protest, and then the Columbus statue. So it's really this case by case issue. You know, you have, I think on one side, you have the, the there's like the argument that's like, if a statue is there, then that, that person was recognized at a certain point in history that commemorates that time. And then the, the, nuance, the nuance is too, is too difficult to determine in hindsight. So once you take down one statue, it can become a slippery slope and, and kind of where does it end? But then on, on the other side, you're right. It's, it's this re-education thing. It's do we really want to commemorate individuals that, you know, we, we now see, um, you know, with the, we, we now see to have committed, uh, um, you know, sinful deeds, let's say. So, so like, well, I, you know. I think it's possible to develop um, criteria uh, for what needs to come down and, um, I also think that there are so many people who, because we have these, uh, the statues up that are up, that there are other people who deserve that kind of recognition that don't get it. And they don't get it because um, perhaps we don't know enough, enough about them. I mean, Philadelphia is, is home to, you know, some icons of, of uh, history, uh, Paul Robeson, Marian Anderson. I mean, it's just uh, an endless uh, group. And then maybe, uh, and I think that, so we develop criteria, there's an education um, process. And then, but I do think that some of the uh, statues of people who have done such harm, like uh, the people who spoke out in Congress uh, in favor of slavery and in, in favor of what the, uh, what the South did. Uh, I, don't, I don't see any reason to, uh, to honor them. Mm -hmm. 
and I so but I think that people need to know when you when you advocate for a statue to be taken down or a monument to no longer exist there should be an education people should know why yeah absolutely um speaking of education i'm interesting to compare our perspectives um from when each of us were in school um but how how were you taught about about slavery and colonization um when you were in in grammar school in high school um um, I don't, I don't remember, well, we even, not just slavery, but, um, uh, but what we did to the uh, indigenous people. Uh, I don't remember explicitly learning about that in school. Mm-hmm. And much to my embarrassment, I taught school, I taught in elementary school for, uh, for three years. And mm-hmm. um, I did, uh, I had this uh, thing that I did, and I learned it from a teacher. I used to read to my class, and I would read uh, poetry and, you know, by African Americans and and others, and um, myths, uh, you know, mythology from uh, other uh, other countries. And, um, but I don't, I didn't do anything explicitly about slavery. I think most African Americans growing up felt embarrassed by it. Hmm. Um, And there was no, uh, you know, and we didn't learn in the formal channels, um, you know, what certain things uh, meant. Uh, We published, uh, my company published a book in 1970 five called Pennsylvania's Black History. Um, and uh, it was, that was an education uh, for me. And I, you know, I learned a lot just by publishing the book, how much control publishers have about whose photograph you use in a book. So it was possible to go through texts and things from the time that I was teaching and the time that I was in school. And you didn't see photographs of uh, of uh, black people. You just, you know, you didn't see it. You know, occasionally there was uh, there was somebody, but um, it was as if we didn't exist in any kind of real way. Mm-hmm. And for our listeners, this was in the nineteen fifties. No, this was in the um, in the sixties, and in the sixties. But I, I think it, uh, you know, it continued. And you could probably go to school, some schools, and still um, find books that perpetuate um, these myths about, uh, you know, George Washington never told a lie or cut down the cherry tree, you know, just just mm-hmm. ridiculous things about people's lives. Yeah, And I- that's what we all learned. Yeah, and I think it's a part of that is because when when you're a kid, adults they want to be sensitive about the stories they tell you. It's almost like teaching someone religion and all you know all the good things that you know the heroes. Every kid needs a, a Mount Olympus, so 
instead of Zeus and the gods, you have you know, George Washington and Abraham Lincoln um, and all these saints, and they're, they're really deified uh, you know, as a kid. Um, I can speak to my experience. As I got older, um, in high school, uh, I started, you know, we started to get a little more in-depth about what, what really happened. We read uh, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, which is, um, is very, very critical and talks a lot about slavery, a lot about uh, colonization. But we didn't, we kind of just read the first sort of section. And I think this is a problem with teaching history is in that it's so chronological and it doesn't often relate what happened. It doesn't relate slavery to the present day, but so much of what we learned is kind of like, um, slavery, reconstruction, civil rights, Jim Crow, that sort of chapter kind of ended as I, as we learned it in school, it sort of ended in the sixties with the civil rights movement. Um, the way we were, we were taught. So, but it so, didn't, it, right. It didn't. And, and that's how, that's how kind of just, that's when the history, the year ends of teaching history, it kind of ends with the sixties. So I think there's a real gap in education about relating these things that happen in history with how it impacts the present day, you know, and I, I was watching the, the other day, you know, Bob Dylan just came out with a new albums and I'm a big fan and I was watching, um, in 1963, the march on, on on Washington with Martin Luther King, he played, he played, he performed, he performed only a a, a pawn in the game. And you look out on the crowd and there's signs, and it looks, it looks just like a black and white version of the protests that were just happening a couple of weeks ago, 60 years later. Um, and it's just amazing, kind of how how similar, you know how. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know, Bob Dylan's still releasing music and we're still protesting, uh, you know, for, for racial equality. I think we underestimate children, uh, young people because I think that they can, they can and they should hear the truth. Mm. And I think that it is, does not do us any good to uh, whitewash history. I use that term on purpose. Um, it doesn't do us any good to do that because I think that what it does is that it makes them see the world in very, um, uh, in very unreal Rose, ways. Rose colored glasses. And, and limited ways. Yeah. Yeah. And um, first impressions like, are very I like, impactful. I like Bob Dylan. Yeah. Also. I love Bob Dylan, actually. Have you heard his Bob new record? Have you heard his new record? I, no, I don't have it, but I um, I read a uh, review of it, and there were there were a couple of lines in there that the reviewer um, mentioned from a couple of his new songs that I thought were uh, really interesting. I don't remember what they were, but they hit me at the moment that I read them. Yeah, he's got a a nine minute song about Florida. So uh -oh. yeah, you and Lisa should, uh, should talk about that. Right. <laughs> uh, po post a reaction video on YouTube. I'll, I'll subscribe. Um, so let's talk about uh, the protest. Now you, uh, you said something very interesting to me. I, I, we spoke for about an hour that Monday afterwards, but I had mentioned 
biking into the city on Sunday and noticing all, all the boarded up windows, all the stores that, um, that either they had their, their windows shattered and were boarding up or they were um, proactively boarding it up just to, to prevent uh, uh, looting. Um, and, you, and you told me that um, you said, of course, that's what you would notice because you're white. And what you said, what you noticed was um, you noticed all the stores that weren't boarded up. Right. You, all the but, stuff that people didn't steal. Right. So I, I was thinking a lot about that, that reaction. And I would love you to just elaborate a little, a little more on that. First, first off, what stores did you notice were completely ignored by looters? Well, when I, um, when I walked down, uh, well, I watched the news the, the night they were, they were looting. And the, uh, one of the things that hit me was, because it was like wall-to-wall coverage of the looters, and particularly on um, Chestnut Street and on Walnut Street. Um, and uh, what struck me was that there were white people and black people who were looting. And then um, the other, and I, I didn't, I couldn't tell from the me. I, I could see that there weren't any uh, police officers there, and I just couldn't understand why there weren't any in that block, sort of the golden block of uh, Philadelphia, uh, 1700 block of uh, Walnut Street. So the next, uh, the next day uh, when I went out. I noticed, and I think that the, one of the differences um, between what I noticed and what you noticed is that I'm an optimist. Uh, you know, I I'm a pessimist. <laughs> well, yeah. All right, go on, go on. I'm an op- optimist. So I noticed that um, there were windows. Usually, when you think of looting, you think of this mob of people who are going down the street and just breaking every window in sight. That didn't happen. Um, there were stores on that hundred block of Walnut Street. There's a jewelry store called Lagos. Um, that they, they didn't have jewelry in the window, but their their windows were not broken. Um, Talbots had been closed for a couple of a uh, couple of months. Um, I mean, closed permanently. Um, their windows weren't broken. So there were a number of stores where the windows weren't broken. The the and when I went out there, there were people cl- cleaning up, just like ordinary people from the neighborhood who had uh, brooms and bags and things like that. They were not only cleaning up the street, they were cleaning up, helping people clean up their stores. And uh, some of the reports that I uh, saw on the news about um, the um, supermarket uh, shop right that owns by Jeff Brown, and I was really, um, really distressed and, you know, saddened to see that his store was looted um, because he made it a point to putting supermarkets in um, in food deserts, in places that didn't have supermarkets. And he's really good in terms of uh, doing things for the community and hiring um returning people and uh, from prison and also uh young people so i was really sad that his stores got 
uh, got damaged. I mean, severely damaged. What's the name but of his the business? Other side of the coin was, pardon me? What, what was the name of his business? Uh, ShopRite, Jeff his, Brown, okay. ShopRite. So, um, but, you know, the uh, glass half full part of me, uh, the next day, how many community people that went in and cleaned up the store? So, and to me, that's what the community is. You have these uh, people who um, do damage and have guns and do other things. And then you have good people. And all communities are made up of both. And I think that uh, too often, all we do, some incident happens and you see only one side of the community. And I think that that's directly related to the one-sided education that kids get in school and that adults don't inform themselves about. Because uh, people that I've talked to, um, white people that I've talked to, when they mention the looting, it is, they, never, they don't know the other side of it, that, um, that there were people who helped to clean up. Uh, and th there were people from the, from the community. So, uh, yeah, I saw the stores that were not damaged mm -hmm. <laughs> and you saw the boarded up stores. Oh, and your, your intuition was, was absolutely right. I mean, this past weekend, Philadelphia downtown was, was bustling there. I've never seen so many people out dining on the sidewalks and you know, part of that's cause you can't be, be inside, but it was still, it's when you're in the summertime, you want to eat outside anyway. And, uh, right. No, it was, it was just, it was really good to, to see. Um, how did the, how did the protest of this past month kind of compare to what you witnessed in the sixties? Um, I, there were more white people and more young people. And I think that that is a very, very hopeful sign. And I, um, in my, more cynical moments. Um, I believe that there would have been a lot more confrontations if there had not been so many white people as part of the protests. I mean, not just here, but all over the country. And in some parts of the country where there's very few um, black people, white people were protesting. Because I think that the George Floyd um, murder um, woke people up and it was the brutality of it and not just the, the, the police, the policeman who did it, but those who stood around and watched him and did nothing for almost nine minutes. That is an incredibly long uh, period of time. And they watch somebody getting murdered like that in a brutal way with his face in the, in the gutter. And I think that that made, um, that made white people and others wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Um, yeah. Something that I was thinking about that in that video is one of the, one of the hardest things I've watched for sure. Um, 
but you're talking about the cops that stood around and, and watched. I was also right. thinking there were so many people also standing around there, like watching it happened as well. There, right. It was filmed from multiple angles. There, there's, there, it was the middle of a city. There was a crowd gathered. Um, people were saying like, he's unconscious, you know, get off him or, but yeah. also like, it's wild to me that you know, the cops did nothing, but also all those people who thought to, to film it. Right. But they didn't think to, like they couldn't, they're kind of powerless to actually go stop it. Cause the cops would have shot him. Yeah. I mean that I, you know, I think that that was fear. And the, the good thing was that it was, you know, that they filmed it. Mm-hmm. Um, so since that occurred, I think Minneapolis announced um, that they were going to take steps to, to defund their police department. Um, what, I, hate, I hate that phrase because I don't mean that. Say more. They mean that they will take some of the money from the police department and put it, uh, put it elsewhere. Um, what uh, Camden did was it disbanded the city of Camden in New Jersey, disbanded their police. The only way that they could get the kind of change that's needed was to, they disbanded it and uh, and rebuilt it um, that because disbanding is the only way that you can get rid of like the union and so they rehired uh, people had to apply for their job again and they reorganized the police department so that there were fewer so that more of the police officers were on foot or on bicycles um, out of their cars, assigned to walking neighborhoods, getting more um, social service. Um, I mean, they, they could even call them, but I don't think they do. This is my phrase. Social service officers or people to go into situations where you don't need someone with a gun. Mm-hmm. You know, if you send someone with a gun into every situation, um, the solution is a bullet. Mm-hmm. And so you don't need that. And it's a waste, I think a waste of resources. So I think in Minneapolis and in um, other areas, uh, other cities, they're thinking about not totally defunding, but rather reorganizing. And if they can't reorganize it under the current uh, regulations that, that uh, police uh, live under, then they have to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. You know, disband and rebuild. I think mm-hmm. uh, defund is such an unfortunate word to have gotten into the atmosphere. Yeah, I agree. It seems like such kind of a logical and appropriate for the Times policy. Um, and the, the, the hashtag of defunding kind of just seems serves to confuse people and kind of just, 
you know, kind of get abused by, you know, Fox News blows it out of proportion. Um, so it's a, it's an unfortunate hashtag for, for a really rightful yeah. and very logical policy change. You said you you said an interesting phrase as you started to talk about that. You said for the times. Well, you know when you you mentioned uh, a little while ago uh, Frank Rizzo, mm -hmm. the police in Philadelphia have always been. Um, there's been an element of the police in Philadelphia who were always racist, who will always be racist and who grew up under um, uh, Frank Rizzo and what he did. And he did such damage uh, to the city that we still have not recovered from it. There are a lot of yeah. African-American um, men who remember what Frank Rizzo did. Yeah. Yeah, I know. As as soon as I I said for the times, I I knew that's not really what I meant. I was I was kind of thinking about how police departments are given all this military gear that's absurd, and they're they're given all the, the the tanks from Iraq and all this kind of new technology that they do not need to just they just don't need it. So like that that needs to be demilitarized. Right. Um, well, yeah, you need to certainly. take that money that they get to do that. They get grants and part of their budget is to buy that stuff. And I think one of the requirements when they buy it is that they have to use it within a year. So what does mm -hmm. that mean? They're going to look for opportunities to, yeah. to trot out their military gear. My God, that's just... <laughs> That just shows like some the numbskulls who design some of these policies. Like who can't who can't think that that's how that's going to be the result of the policy? Like oh, you have to use it within a year, so that they're going to use it. Right. Is, like how do you not think of that? Oh my god, it's a joke. Um, but yeah, certainly, peace. The need for peace is 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 timeless. Uh, the need to demilitarize is is certainly. Uh, certainly timely um let's just like let's go really quickly to to a segment that i'd like to do um called rapid one word reactions just just beverly just my boss tells it like it is okay so i'm gonna gotta give a, a word or a phrase or a name or a thing and you, you don't know these beforehand and you're just gonna react one word it could be a hyphenated word, you know. If if you need to go two words, three words, so it be it. Phrase. <laughs> it could be it could be a long hyphenated phrase. Um, all right, are you ready for it? Ready. All right, we're gonna kind of ease into it a little bit. So, all right, one word reaction. Number one. Philadelphia's famous public place, Rittenhouse Square. Beautiful. Florida. Shameful. <laughs> Shameful about how they've treated the uh, the uh, the virus. Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah. Shameful. Their governor. Shout out to Ron DeSantis. Millennials. My generation. 
uninformed, but hopeful. Thank you. Um, speaking of uninformed, but hopeful, number four, Greta Thunberg, climate change activist. Great. 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 I would say informed and not very hopeful. <laughs> She's kind of the anti-millennial by that definition. Well, I think it's, it's hopeful that she has garnered so much in attention and that she's so passionate. And I think that the world needs to see that. Yeah. Solar and wind energy. Uh, it's, uh, it's time has, has come. Nuclear energy. It's time has passed. <laughs> Closing Three Mile Island. But no carbon emissions. All right, Marlon Brando. Overrated. Overrated. Oh my God. I won't tell Lisa you said that. Except, right, don't tell her. Except for um, his work with uh, the indigenous people. Martin Luther King. Great. A man for the ages. Okay. Hmm. Joe Biden. The best we've got at this moment. Barack Obama. We need more of him. John F. Kennedy. He rose to the occasion. Malcolm X. Great orator. Okay. The greatest city in the world. Well, Philadelphia, I have to say that because uh, I, I do love Philadelphia, but I also... Uh, I have my other favorite cities. I like Venice. Venice. When were you in Venice? When was the last time? Um, I don't know, maybe uh, eight, eight or nine years ago. Um, the thing that I liked about Venice was no cars. Hmm. Okay. Loved that about Venice. I like that. How'd you get around? Motorcycle? Well, yeah, no, walked. Okay, <laughs> good. Well, it could have been, you could have said boat, you know. Yeah. Um, Bob Dylan. Great poet. The first face you would like to see when you get to heaven. Are you there? Um, I'm there. Oh, okay. Did you did you answer? I didn't hear. 
Yeah, I said my mother. Your mother. Sorry, it froze for a second. Yeah. Okay. Yes, no, or maybe. We will solve climate change enough to live for another 1,000 years plus. Yes, yes. Okay. I told you I'm an optimist. I like it. I like it. Okay. Um, I'm going to follow up here. We have a, a question from our listener. All right. Our one listener? <laughs> yeah, it's submitted by uh, Z Naliweko. Okay. Um, I think you've met him before. Yes. I think, or he's called before. Yeah. So, all right. So his question is, Beverly, what, and you might've covered some of this, but, but we'll just give you another chance uh, to address his dire- question directly. Um, what do you have to say about the intersection between race relations and climate change? How can we split our focus between addressing racial injustice and inequality while still prioritizing climate change? Can the two efforts help one another out? Do we need to put climate change on hold to focus on civil rights? Something along those lines, I'm sure you can word it better than me. Well, all right, forget that last part. But uh, I, I don't think that um, I don't think that we can afford to only address uh, one of our um, one of our big uh, issues. Uh, I I think that um, elections are important, and the way that uh, districts have been ger- gerrymandered. I, I think is a detriment to all of us. Um, so I think that uh, we need, there are probably five to 10 big issues that we need to, um, we need to address simultaneously. Uh, and even if it's, you know, there are different groups addressing different things, but as a society, we have to be able to, um, to deal with one, uh, to deal with more than one thing at a time. I think it's obscene what the Republicans have done in terms of walking away from what this, uh, what this president is, as the damage that, that he has done, not just to America, but to the whole world. I think that people need um, education about uh, about climate change. I think there's a lot of myths about that and it's got to start with the, with the schools. I think it's obscene that this country does not, uh, does not vote in the numbers that we should and that we allow um, politicians to uh, disenfranchise people and to uh, depress uh, voting. Um, I think that uh, it is obscene for anybody in this country to be hungry. I think homelessness is crazy. Um, I, I could name about, there are about 10 things on my list that have to be addressed simultaneously. And it's not an either or, 
it's uh, we have to do all of this and we have the capacity to do all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, do you have any, is there, are there any kind of policies that, that you would like to see? This is just building on the question. Any kind of policies that you would like to see implemented that um, have a kind of holistic um, kind of viewpoint that can address multiple multiple issues at once. Um, um, well, it's uh, the, uh, the policy about or policies related to what we teach in our schools, um, mm -hmm. I think is, is critical. And um, if we don't educate those individuals who will ultimately um, in, inherit, the, inherit the earth, then we'll continue to, uh, we'll continue to stumble. I think um, there should be policies related to, uh, related to adult education. I think mm -hmm. people are, and we see this um, in the um, demonstrations are, uh, that are going on, people are woefully ignorant about lots of things. Like they didn't know that there were police officers who were bad. I mean, that is a stunning amount of ignorance. It's just stunning. I mean, people live in these bubbles the media, uh, so much media, so much um, the twenty four seven so called news doesn't doesn't help. But I don't think there are single policies that are going to, um, you know, help climate change. I think there's broad based uh, education on a lot of different fronts, and that's one of them. Mm -hmm. Um, so a thought experiment here, um, on the subject of, of change through education. Um, what advice would you give to maybe like a, to a younger parent right now who has their kids at home in quarantine? Um, school is, is online. It's not the same thing, but there's a lot of homeschooling, a lot of opportunities for homeschooling. Um, so if, if you had to make a curriculum for a ninth grader, let's say, you know, a 15 year old kid, um, what would you, and you had four to five hours a day, what would you teach them? Well, uh, uh, those things that I, um, uh, that I, that I mentioned, uh, you know, teach them about, uh, other, uh, cultures, teach them about science. I mean, how obscene is it that we hear people say that this president or this person or that person doesn't believe in science? I mean, that's, that is a, a totally ridiculous statement. So anyway, um, literature, I mean, culture, different cultures, literature, mm -hmm. I would have them read as many books as possible. What's uh, on your book list? On my book list, mm -hmm. uh, well, right now, I'm reading slowly Michelle Obama's book, 
becoming. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that that family and Barack Obama, th- that that could be a, um, a a lesson in itself because it it teaches so much about the um, African American experience in this country and how he and his family was able that they were able to become the um the leaders of the free world i mean that is stunning i never thought that i would see that in my lifetime and there are a lot of african americans who think that way Mm -hmm. so i think that education should be um eclectic i think Mm -hmm. we need to teach all kids about everything um what books would you recommend to a high school student to go back maybe something that inspired you when you were in high school um i don't know i <laughs> i i used to read and and i still do i read a lot of uh, detective stories some people um some people say that I read them because they have a very, um, they have a very neat beginning, a middle, there's a crime. So somebody, uh, you know, the, 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 there's this whole um, investigative uh, activity and then the criminal gets caught and goes to jail. So it's like a very neat picture of of the world and that's why I read them. But I love uh, poetry. I read Shakespeare out loud to help with my uh, diction. I have, um, my mother uh, used to read poetry uh, uh, to us and there are a few poems. uh, If you can keep your head when all about your losing theirs and blaming it on you. I mean, there are just so many that and sometimes I just get out my 101 best poems and read several of them out loud. That's great. Um, so I can't have you on on this podcast without asking you some some stories, uh, some anecdotes from your 50 years uh, as as the president of of your company. Um, so can you just kind of take our, our listeners through the experience of, you know, start starting portfolio associates, uh, when you did, um, how you did it. Um, let's, let's start with that. Um, what, wh- when did you decide that you wanted to go from, from teaching to, to founding this company and, and how did you identify what you wanted your business to be? Well, um, I'll take the last part of that first. Um, the The business evolved. It wasn't what I thought it would be uh, in the beginning, and I was I was young. I I was tired of. Uh, I taught school. I wor- I worked since I was like fifteen. Before I was fifteen, I so when I was fifteen, I got a real job with a paycheck at a uh, boys and girls club um but i cleaned people's houses i 
uh, babysitting. So I've always worked. As when I was in college, I uh, a guy uh, in my neighborhood and I decided to start a a little community organization, and we uh, rented a uh, ice cream store so that we would give young people an opportunity to to work. Um, I did a little neighborhood newspaper where we got businesses to contribute to to it and I did a lads for them. Um, I taught school because uh, growing up in the uh, in the 50s if you were an African-American female that was what you got steered to do is to teach or something else in the social service arena. Um, so I went to Temple University um, uh, degree in education taught school I didn't, I was a great teacher. I didn't like, um, I didn't think teaching was very challenging. So I, even though the last year that I was in the system, I planned the math program for the school. And it was a fairly large elementary school. Uh, I had kids, they allowed me to have kids in the fourth, fifth and sixth grade change classes for math. That was unheard of. Um, then I uh, had an opportunity to run a training program in Montgomery County for uh, an organization called the Opportunities Industrialization Center started by Leon Sullivan, Reverend Leon Sullivan. And um, so I ran that training program and sometime during there I decided I was tired of working for other people and I was gonna start a business. I was young and I didn't know anything about business. But I thought I didn't want to be an, in a nonprofit because I didn't want to beg people for money. Mm. And so decided to start a business. And over time, it evolved from doing, um, helping small community-based organizations to um, uh, uh, working. We got a contract to, we want retainer with a bank they wanted to open a community information center and we helped them put that together. And then um, I was uh, very active in lots of uh, organizations. I was on the uh, Pennsylvania Commission for Women, lots of different organizations. It was unusual for an African-American woman to have a business. So I was constantly asked to do volunteer stuff like be on boards and chair boards and do stuff like that. Um, I decided uh, early on that we couldn't continue to work with small organizations because they had so many needs and so few resources. Mm -hmm. So um, I decided to um, figure out a way to get people involved in transportation planning. It was just something we sat around talking about and made up this thing called a pie model. Pie and model. Participation equals information and education, PIE. Okay. And sent it to the Secretary of Transportation in Pennsylvania. He had somebody respond and we, um, we got a sole source contract. Um, it was really, uh, we formed a 
joint venture with an architect firm because at the time I'd only been in business for about six or seven years and thought they're not going to take me seriously. So we found this company, did a joint venture and did a landmark study of how to involve citizens in transportation planning. And wow. we were off to the races in that arena. What were the findings of that study? Do you remember? Yeah, we did a, um, we did a survey of uh, the 50 departments of transportation. Uh, this was in about the middle 70s. And uh, we found that um, uh, very few of them were doing anything substantive in public involvement. But we documented that we were, went out to California, was, um, I think it was Los Angeles was doing some interesting things. So we went there. We went up to Boston and found that there was a project that the Massachusetts Department of Transportation was going to build, but there was, and they had started to build it. It was a new highway. There was so much, um, and it was going through, of course, uh, an African-American community. Um, so there was so much opposition that the road just stopped. You know, they just didn't, didn't build it anymore. So there was a combination of lessons learned and, and the first of its kind compendium of what was happening across the country. And that became the study that for 10 years, uh, anybody who was doing research in that area um, quoted from the study and referenced the study. We also did a, um, we did a manual of techniques for how to involve uh, citizens, um, communities in transportation planning from systems planning through construction. And mm -hmm. so there were these 40 techniques in there and some complicated way that you figured out what technique to use. Can you give me one or two of those techniques? Well, I mean, it's stuff that we, we still do to, today. Um, how to form a uh, steering committee, um, how to survey communities, you know, to find out what their needs are. I mean, this, if you look back on it, most of the things that are in there are things that we still do. Um, do you have any stories from public meetings that you helped put together? Um, either, either good memories or not so good memories? No, I like, um, I like public meetings. I mean, I'm good at facilitating them, mainly because I don't take what, you know, people are passionate about their communities and I don't take that passion um, uh, personally, and I let them know that. And so, uh, you did, in, um, when we were doing this, the big project for SEPTA in West Philadelphia, we did 80 community meetings and, um, people would come to the meetings and say, are there going to be bathrooms in the new stations? No, they're not going to be bathrooms. At 50 of those meetings, people asked the same question and they got the same answer. No, they're not going to be bathrooms. So I think that consistency is really important. Be consistent. Uh, why can't there be bathrooms at septa stations? 
Well, there's their uh, bathrooms at transfer stations. So at 69th Street, there their bathrooms, their bathrooms at, um, at uh, City Hall stations. So where there are uh, transfers to other modes. And I think they're not bathrooms because they're not um, uh, the maintenance. Mm -hmm. The maintenance would just be off the charts. So I, I mean, when, other yeah. countries find a way to do that. But I think we have not taught kids about civic responsibility wiping <laughs> aiming <laughs> civic responsibility is that what you, that what you mean wiping and aiming we don't teach them the importance of voting we don't teach them yeah. about like not spitting in the street and doing all kinds of other unmentionable things so it's just we you know, I, I don't know why we don't. There should be a civics class at every grade level. Yeah. One of the things that shocked me the most when I moved to Korea and I was living in Seoul was, first of all, how clean all the streets were, even though this is a city as big and compact as New York. Um, at all the subway stations were pristine and had public restrooms. You know, not even the case where you need a key and you need to ask them. You just walk right in the, the restrooms. It's all clean, um, like an airport, basically. The subway systems, it was like what you would expect at the airport. Um, and it was, it was a shock to me. And it was amazing. It was so convenient. You could be out and about doing whatever you want. And, you know, every few blocks, there's a subway station. You, if you have to, you know, take a leak, down you go. I, I think this... Um... American experiment where we have people from all over the world who have come to someone hanging up a painting or something. I, don't, I hope they're just hanging up a painting. <laughs> um, we have people from all over the world who have come to live together. I think it is uh, infinitely easier if you're from a country or a culture where everybody is the same because yeah. there are some things ingrained in them that um, there are things ingrained in them that they've known for generations. And here, generations are different. And you get people who have been here for five minutes and you get people like me who I can trace my family back at least six generations. Yeah, very true. Yeah, all my, my grandparents are from different countries in, in Europe, countries that don't exist anymore. And people in Korea, their lineage goes back right, right where right. they're living today, back thousands of years. Where, right. where's, um, where's, where, where's, how far can you trace your lineage back? About six years. Well, I'll, uh, here's, a, uh, here's a good story. So my, we've been doing family reunions for about 30 years. We've done a lot of work on tracing our family, uh, our family history, um, so much so that the in the African American Museum of History and Culture in Washington, that was just recently uh, built. Uh, there's a cabin in there from my family. It's called the Jones Hall Sims House, and it was um, still intact 
and the museum moved it from Montgomery County, Maryland to the museum. You know, they did all the due diligence of tracing the, uh, who built the, the cabin and um, people actually lived in it. And I have cousins that live in Maryland who remember playing in the house. So the museum had sent us, you know, tickets to the opening and um, uh, I didn't go to the opening of the museum, but we did a family reunion a couple of years ago where we had the family all meet there. And uh, the, so the museum is very good to us. Anytime any of us want to go, we can just call them and they'll make tickets available to us. The one thing that I think is missing from that is they need to show a link between the cabin and the people there and the Harpers and Joneses. Uh, Jones is my grandmother's maiden name to people who are still living today. So I will get them to do that as soon as I get a minute to write and tell them why they should do it. Okay. Um, going back to the story of, of your career, um, can you talk about how you started to get um, a minority owned and women owned business, uh, the, the certification standards uh, for the city of Philadelphia, um, what you what you did um, for that and how that came to be? Yeah, there was a um, a congressperson from Maryland, uh, Perrin Mitchell, who used to have a quarterly, and this was in the um, early, late 70s and early 80s. He had a, um, uh, he was head of the Congressional Black Caucus, and he did something called, uh, he would have these quarterly meetings. And at one point, um, so I decided to go to one of them, and there were about five or six other um, minority business people who were in Washington for that uh, for that meeting. And one of the things that Congressman Mitchell said to the whole group, and there were like several hundred people from all over the country, and he said, "You need to go back to your municipality because they do millions and millions, hundreds of millions of." dollars in contracts and they're not awarding contracts to minority firms so the about five of us who were there from philadelphia got together we had lunch down there and said well let's go back to, when we go back to philadelphia let's meet and see if there's a any interest so we came back to philadelphia and um formed an organization called the brain trust a minority business action group and I became the president of it, I guess because I was so vocal. And I had been in business longer than most of them. And it was mostly uh, African-American guys. There were a couple of women involved, but they didn't own businesses. And they, um, so we um, got someone in the city to uh, do some research and give us information about city contracts. And we found that minorities were getting less than 1% of city contracts. So we thought that that was outrageous. So we would have these monthly meetings where we would invite different department heads to come. We would invite other quasi public uh, entities like PGW, the gas works, the electric company, 
um, several others. And uh, I learned later that people were really afraid when they came to meet with us. Um, you know, because this was this group of black business people who were asking them hard questions. And we were all, we were very serious. What year so was it? This was in about 1982. Mm -hmm. And so, so the treasurer, uh, we had a lawyer who was vice president. I was president. We had a vice president treasurer. We did five years of big um, dinners. I gave, always gave the keynote speech. The, we drafted the city's legislation. We helped to organize the hearings in city council. Um, the mayor at the time was a guy named Bill Green. Uh, city council passed the legislation. Um, you know, they has to go through two readings. So the night before the final vote on it, no, they passed the legislation, he vetoed it. So they thought that they had enough votes to override the veto. The mayor called me and said, um, can you please get Lou Blackwell to recall the legislation? I said, I can't do that. I said, I told you, I had met with him early on and said, this is what we're doing. And he didn't think we could get it done. So uh, the next day in city council was electric. It was packed and um, city council overrode his veto. And that legislation at the time guaranteed minorities 15% and women-owned businesses 10%. And I, the strategy was to separate the two because there was great concern that white women would get more of the contracts. So that's, and plus city council had women on it. And so I thought that the way to get the women to support it was to separate it, not just say for minorities, but say for minorities and then for, for women. And um, so, uh, and I used to do, you know, media interviews and people would say, well, I don't believe in goals. I said, that's okay. The, re the reality is whatever you believe in, you know that less than 1% doesn't make sense in a city that is approaching 40% minority. Mm. I don't care what the goal is, but 1% is less than 1% is not enough. Mm -hmm. So that's how I got around that argument that they would say, well, we don't like goals. Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a great story. And now, now it's all been almost 40 years, if you can believe that, Bev. I know. Um, so how do you, how do you think, is it, is it the same, have there been, is it the same policy pretty much as it was in 1982? Has it been, been changed at all? It's been tweaked. There was, there's um, an organization called the Association of General Contractors and all across the country, they sued to prevent this kind of legislation. They just went after it. Um, that's the contracting um, community. Um, in, in Atlanta, there was a mayor, uh, in the early 80s, Maynard Jackson, when they were building their big airport. And he called the contractors in when they were just, you know, designing and getting ready to construct it. He called the, all the top contractors in and he said, you're gonna have minority um, participation on these contracts or else there will be no contracts. I mean, he was really strong 
in this. And he was like this model for all of the rest of us because the rest of us had to go through legislation because we didn't have a mayor that was strong enough to just make that kind of pronouncement. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, today it's disappointing today because um, I, I would suspect that minorities are getting maybe 10% of the contracts, but the documentation is woefully lacking. Mm -hmm. And it used to be that they would count participation when someone put a bid in. They say, oh, we're going to give this minority business 25%. So it was counted from the front end. Mm. And that minority business may have ended up getting like 5%. But mm. all the data was on that front end. So they've made some changes in how they do things, but mm -hmm. it's still not where it should be. Right. It was counted as a percent committed as opposed to a percent paid out. The yeah. actual money in somebody's pocket, right? Yeah. So if, if you could snap your fingers, let's say you were, they just, let's say Mayor Kenny just said, you know what, I'm going to disband this whole city council thing and I'm just going to like let Beverly snap her fingers. Um, what would you do to, to build on, on that, uh, either the OEO program um, to, 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 make, to make that more complete? Would it be just raising the percentages or are there other changes uh, that you would make to it to make it more effective. Well, interesting enough, one of the things that has to happen is there's not uh, there's not a big pipeline of minority firms. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have to start back with um, how you educate uh, minorities to go into to business mm -hmm. because you can set a really high goal, but if there are no minorities to take advantage of it then, and Philadelphia has one of the worst records of the number of minority business uh, per um, hundred thousand or per thousand uh, minorities. It's just, it's abysmal. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think you would, you would start there and then you would uh, work with the, and what I would do is work with the, the top, three to five agencies in the city that do the most contracting and get them to get their house in orders, like the streets department, the water department, um, and there are a couple of other departments that do the lion's share mm -hmm. and uh, work on them first. I want to throw an idea that I just thought of. <clears throat> uh -oh. So a lot of what you're talking about is also supporting and nurturing small businesses to establish that, that pipeline, mm -hmm. a, a big, a big pain in the, you know, what for small businesses is the amount of developmental non-billable work it takes to participate on these public projects. Right. And a, and a problem is that the, the government, the city can't, they're strapped for cash too. Um, so, but often it's, it's the large firm, you know, the engineering firm of a thousand employees that's in the middle that they have the resources, um, but they're asking things of the city of their subs. So just what if, what if let's say that the city said that, yeah, there's, there's a 20%, you know, MBE requirement or, or whatever, but then once the contract is awarded, 
the small business subcontractor is allowed to bill the prime for the work that they did on the proposal. Like the developmental work that it took to, to get there. Cause we, I mean, we put in hours. It's, it, it seems like, and it's a small, it's a small enough thing that it's really not a lot of skin off the engineering firm's back. It's maybe, you know, five, 10 hours, depending on what they're asking for. Could be less, could be more, but you know, it's something and it seems like a pretty easy thing and it's, it's no more money for the city cause it's just, it's from the engineering firm. You mean you're asking this big white company who all they care about is their bottom line and money to give up some of their money to this minority business that they're not going to get reimbursed for? That ain't going to happen. Mm, okay. Well. Gonna, so I think there's, there are different ways to, to do it. Like the, um, the amount of information that, um, the prime contractor collects from the minority business to bid on a job is way too much. Mm -hmm. Like there should be, I mean, we're not, um, we're not an unknown and, you know, it may be uh, slightly different for different, for different companies. But when we bid on a job, like if we bid with uh, a company on five different projects, they will ask five different times for all of the information. That's ridiculous. So there's some things that they could do to make it less of a burden on the small business. But then there should be, if the small business is certified and recognized and, you know, you may have to provide some uh, information about your capabilities once, but once that's in a sort of a central location, you can just pick a firm from that list and they'll be, you know, um, uh, to add to your team mm -hmm. without asking them to do all that work that you were just referring to. Mm -hmm. yeah. so I think, yeah, there are a lot of ways that would be more of, helpful. There are a lot of small tweaks. But what's a, what's a big, so what's a big change now? A separate question that's, you know, on par with what you did in 1982. What's, what's like another, you know, another big step uh, that could happen um, now, you know, moving forward in this kind of, you know, for this moment when everyone's attention is on, on racial injustice. Um, to, to what's have a, what's some, a big piece of legislation that can come out of this moment? You mean as it relates to business? Um, as, it, just, as it relates to um, racial equality. Well, um, I think that uh, uh, there has to be more education about the story of America. I think that cities need to do more in support of uh, small and minority uh, businesses. One, there should be some contracts that only go to a small and minority business. So we're not having to compete against some, um, some big firm. Um, I think they should do more with getting minority businesses paid in a, timely way. 
Um, and I think that every school should uh, be required to teach entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is not just that you want to start a business because you can be an entrepreneur in a salaried position. It's how you treat, how you think about that position it can be uh, entrepreneurial. Um, mm -hmm. I um, think there should be these plaques that they put on uh, every um, statue that's like it's history with a particular uh, emphasis on um, diversity and whether or not they were uh, involved in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. And I think they should make uh, colleges and universities do more because they don't pay uh, property taxes. Mm -hmm. What about, what do you, where do you stand on the whole question about charter schools and public schools in Philadelphia? Now, on one hand, charter schools um, give students the opportunity to to maybe be with uh, people on the same on the same learning level or go at a go at a pace that's more suitable for them. But on on the other hand, it's kind of like skimming off the top of the public schools and making the public schools um, sort of like, like weaker in that department, for lack public, of a better word. Charter schools are public schools. A Mm -hmm. B, public schools ought to be better. Mm -hmm. There should be more competition. And why should poor people not have choice? Mm. And that's when you don't allow them to choose the schools that their kids go to. And I like the fact that uh, charter schools are more independent, like that principal and that board of a charter school has a lot more flexibility terms of what uh, what it can do. Public schools, the way they exist today in Philadelphia, are a dinosaur. Mm. Mm. And they ought to take everybody who's out of the headquarters, all those offices that are in the headquarters, they ought to move them out into, into communities. Mm. Um. You were involved with the school district's plan about when they were closing different schools. Um, what did you learn at one of those public meetings? What maybe point was raised or issue that you hadn't really thought about before or consider or something that surprised you? Or are you uh, beyond surprise? At this no, point? I'm not beyond surprise. <laughs> I was surprised that uh, I was surprised at how connected people were to certain buildings and how difficult it was for them to grasp that if I had to have a building uh, that um, can hold uh, 1,200 kids and there are only 200 kids in it, that you can't keep that building alive. I think that one of the things that um, could have happened with greater uh, intention 
was to help communities figure out what to do with those schools. And I, um, but I was surprised that that was such a difficult thing for people to grasp. Mm -hmm. So yes, I can be surprised. <laughs> um, when you think of high school, I want to give, let's go back to one word, rapid fire reactions. All right. High school. Beverly in high school. Do you have one memory or one story that comes to mind? High school was uh, difficult for me. Um, it was a it was a challenging uh, time, and not because of the work. It was challenging because my family was so poor. And we didn't have the money for me to do the things that high school kids do, like go on trips. I don't think I went on any trips, any of the trips, or the prom, or any of that. Hmm. It was just a, it was a difficult. Junior high, we had junior highs and senior high, both junior and senior high were hard for me because of that, because my family was so poor. I didn't have lunch money. Mm -hmm. um, if you were me right now, what question would you ask you that would make a good question for a program? I would ask me if I would uh, if I would come back again <laughs> and uh, have a different set of uh, uh, you know and to continue some of the uh, some of the discussions that we started. I mean, this was kind of all over the place. Um, some of the things that I am uh, interested in uh, the um, colleges and universities that benefited from the uh, people who were enslaved in terms of how they got um, built, uh, like Georgetown, Harvard, Brown, uh, Rutgers, Columbia, um, how pervasive, you know, people think that slavery happened back then, but what are the, um, what are the outcomes or how does the fact that there's a whole group of people who were enslaved and their descendants are alive today, how are those descendants affected by that today? Um, mm. you could well, ask I, well, I'm asking you about that now. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> Let's just cover it. Well, well, the other the other thing about discussions like this is that, um, you know, there's no. Are you underwhelmed? Am I doing a poor job? <laughs> no. Do you ever do a poor job? No. If I thought you would, you, there was any chance of that, I wouldn't even do this. I think you you have a genuine curiosity 
about things from another perspective. And I admire that. I appreciate that. Um, okay. So I'm sorry to, to have interrupted you with my, um, with your insecurity, with my, uh, insecurity, my, my Jewish neuroticism. Right. Um, that's all right. I'm used to it. You used to it. Oh, the, uh, Lisa. <laughs> so, uh, Lisa. yeah, I, I think that the, um, I think that when people don't see themselves in society in any meaningful way, like it wasn't that long ago that you didn't see very many um, African-Americans or anybody different on television, in commercials, in shows. I mean, this is, this is recent. We're talking, um, you know, 2000s and you know late 90s you know you had a few uh shows that's why it, when something happens like the bill cosby thing it seems like such a big deal because that was one of the few shows back then where they'd look where it looked like there was something to look up for look up to mm -hmm. so I think that when people don't see themselves, and then I think that there's an awful lot of racism that still exists. Like in some parts of the the city, I don't feel comfortable. Uh, you know, some parts of uh, South Philly and some parts of the Northeast. Mm. It's just, and that's because uh, the city has sort of evolved in these um, in these enclaves. And it's like they, you, you don't go there. Have you ever had an, an ex, so have you ever had an experience with a police officer? I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure you have, but is there, is there no, one that kind of jumps out as just like something that you think back to whenever you hear another story about, uh, you know, unarmed black guy getting murdered by a policeman? No. And you know, the, interesting thing is that i have um you know from a large family of eight brothers and um they i don't remember them ever talking about but i was so focused i guess i was so focused on what i was doing they didn't talk about the police harassing them i um, mean my brothers were all kind of nice guys i mean they were like nice guys and mm -hmm. um it was you know, just more they, like everyday white people. What? It was just more everyday white people racism rather than police. Uh, yes, yes. Uh, I was called the N word twice in my life, and that was a stunningly hurtful, just uh, a horrible thing to hear. Once was in Florida. Um, friend and I stopped in a bar and, uh, you know, nice, very nice facility. We went to the bar to have a drink. There was a guy sitting there and he said, and he got up and left. He said, I don't drink with ends. That was stunning. And then the other was in Cape May. Uh, we used to have a place, an apartment in Cape May for years. And I went for a walk on the 
their boardwalk and these uh, young guys were facing me, they walked toward me and uh, said, and I was by myself, so I was, you know, and I had been going to Cape May for years and they said, oh, it's an inn. And it's just, you just felt so vulnerable. It's like they could have done something. They could have punched me, they could have done something, but it was just uh, horrifying. And that's, you know, that's one of my brothers got, uh, he was, he got arrested for something. They didn't charge him. He was, and he called me and I went to, it was a local precinct. And um, he said there had been a robbery and they caught one of the guys. And one of the guys, the guy that they caught said my brother was with him. And my brother said, I didn't even know him. I didn't know him. I was walking down the street and this cop car stopped. This guy was in it. The guy had pointed him out and said, yeah, that's the guy who was with me. So I convinced them that it wasn't my brother. But that's the closest I ever got. But I know that during the Rizzo years, it was pretty uh, intense for young black guys in Philadelphia. God. Um, have you ever met Rizzo or did you ever, ever meet former Philadelphia Mayor Frank Rizzo who just got his statue taken down? <laughs> and not a moment too soon. I don't even know why they put it up there. I no, I never passed. You know, they, they, were, they were saying that the reason they couldn't take it down was because the foundation and it was just built so so it was so difficult to take down and it would take them months, if not years. And then, you know, two days later, they took it down. <laughs> Overnight, they took it down. Overnight. Did you ever meet? Uh, no, Rizzo? I never met him. What did, you, in, what did you hear about him? What was the perception when he was here? What were people saying about him? Oh, that he was racist. That, um, and he, he uh, you know, the police were... Uh, under him were racist. They, um, you know, periodically beat up black guys. I mean, it was just part of the uh, part of the environment. The um, it was interesting. The guy that cuts my hair, the barber shop. I was in there one day, and his mother was there, and his mother used to work um, for Rizzo in Rizzo's office. And um, she was talking about what a nice guy Rizzo was. And my barber, Max, was kept telling her, That's, no, he wasn't. You just couldn't, it was just this interesting conversation between the, uh, between the two of them about mm -hmm. Frank Rizzo. He said, you can go out on the street and ask any guy, any black guy, um, my age, maybe he's in his 40s or early 50s, about Frank Rizzo. And they'll tell you a whole other story. When did his statue go up? Was it during his lifetime? Oh, no. Oh, no, I think he is. He, uh, he, had, he had died. Um, it, I, I forget when they put it up. Maybe, maybe 10 years ago. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I was surprised was, they put it there. Who was the, the best mayor in Philadelphia in, in your lifetime? 
and why? I think um, Ed Rendell, I think he was such a cheerleader for the city. And he was very, uh, he was accessible. When was uh, that? When was he mayor? Was he mayor? Uh, he was mayor after, was he after Wilson Good? Because um, then he went on to be, to be governor. And he had a guy, um, I, don't, I don't remember the exact years, um, David Cohen, who was his um, managing director or, or chief of staff. But uh, David uh, was very, very uh, smart. I think they did smart things and they helped give the city a new, um, a new uh, impression of itself. Um, I just Googled Ed Rendell just to yeah. fact check it. Yes. First Jewish mayor of Philadelphia. Did you know that? You know, he was Jewish. Yes. First elected in 1991. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about um, in the mid eighties? So right after your, uh, your MBE WBE um, legislation, what do you remember about the decision to build buildings higher than City Hall? Um, not much. It was a, um, you know, a gentleman's agreement. There wasn't anything in legislation that prevented from doing it. And the first one um, that did it was Bill Rouse. Um, he was a, a developer and I believe he built Liberty Place and that was the first building higher than, um, than City Hall. Is there anything that, and now I'm just, all the questions I haven't asked yet. Is there any, um, anything from the 60s or the time that you started Portfolio, um, anything that you miss from the 60s of what life was like? Um, it was simpler. I was, you know, um, I, I was young. I would, had fun. I liked the music. Mm -hmm. um, Who is the greatest recording artist of all time? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I liked different people in different uh, in different uh, periods. Um, I've certainly uh, well. I think there's the music, the music of the '60s and '70s, because I've got to include uh, Stevie Wonder, who throughout the '70s, um, almost every year he put out a new album that was. Uh, better than the last one. But I, I think my taste in uh, like rock and roll music was very eclectic. Like I liked um, Bob Dylan. I loved the band. Mm. Um, Did you ever see the band live? No. Bob Dylan the, live? No, I saw the Rolling Stones live. Oh, really? Yeah. How, when and, was that? I don't know. 
I uh -huh. saw Cher live uh. with Cindy Lauper. <laughs> that was fun. Um, when do you think Pennsylvania will legalize marijuana? Any second now. <laughs> it's stupid to not legalize it. A little late in the game, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's why not? It's. Mm -mm. I always, you know, I never understood the difference. I mean, alcohol is so much more destructive mm -hmm. in people's lives and in society than marijuana. And it's just the, I think that it's a function of the people who got elected at some point and stayed elected for decades and their view of the their view of the 60s and mm -hmm. that makes them not do it i hear you um now i gotta ask you before you go these are the last questions i promise because i know it's been a while and uh we're on the clock uh i got two more questions for you okay one the first is a transportation question um what do you think the impact of the coronavirus is going to be on transit? Um, on, you know, subways, you already see in New York City, they've shut down service after 1 a.m. So it's no longer the city that never sleeps. Um, and they're saying that this, it could be a kind of a long-term thing because it gives them a chance to clean the subways. People aren't riding transit as much. There's a fear that people aren't using the buses as much. Are we going to go back to all buying cars? So what does this mean for cities, for density, for transit, for walkability? How is COVID going to affect that um, short-term and long-term? Well, I think transit is going to have to be more flexible. Um, and uh, it definitely uh, will change. I think all the excuses that uh, large transit authorities had for why they couldn't keep their vehicles and facilities clean. All of that excuse is out the window because mm. they have to do that now. And I think that's a good thing. But I think that that needs to be married with, uh, with a civic education. Mm -hmm. um, An investment. And yeah. Um, I think that we are very far behind in our um, transportation infrastructure compared to, to other countries. And that includes uh, mass transit, um, airports. And these are all of the entities that got hit so hard. Uh, I think um, you said, you know, possibly more people will be, uh, driving cars, but I think in cities, it will probably be more walking, biking, mm. scooters, skateboards, yeah. I mean, lots, thing, of, lots of other things. My favorite thing Philadelphia has done was close Martin Luther King Drive to cars and just open it up to bikers and pedestrians. It's, it's been, been a godsend uh, of an amenity. Um, but spe speaking of air, uh, airports and um, so the airline industry, they were bailed out by the stimulus package uh, or they were given a huge stimulus check bailout. Yeah. Um, 
But what about transit agencies? Shouldn't the federal government include transit agencies in their next stimulus they gave, package? They gave, they gave transit agencies money. SEPTA got, I don't know, three or $500 million. Um, but I think that they have to rethink their model. For, for, for years, I've thought that as we saw the um, increase in eds and meds and large apartment buildings um, providing bus service to their tenants, like the, um, you know, Penn and Drexel, they all have these buses that they run. And I have always thought that SEPTA should think of itself as a um, mobility entity, not a an entity that just runs these fixed routes, whether it bu is buses or trains or subways. Mm -hmm. But they should make deals with these other entities that need customized service. I think they should have a division of customized service. Because mm -hmm. um, they have more buses on the street, for example, than anybody. So how, so and plus they'll have many more buses that are riding em empty. So why don't they um, try to work with these other entities? Mm -hmm. um, but they are gonna have to change. They are gonna have to change. Yeah. I think the same thing about the police because all of these, uh, SEPTA has a police force, the, the universities have their own security, hospitals have their own security. and why should there be that many uncoordinated police functions? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, what's your secret or advice to young people for remaining hopeful and optimistic uh, in these times with, with our, uh, the immediate considerations and then also climate change? I think that young people should think about the world as they would like it to be. And I think they should uh, work to make it so. Um, I think this is a golden opportunity uh, for young people. I think they should demonstrate that they have the capacity to handle more than one thing at a time that the demonstrations are not just about uh, Black Lives Matter, but they are about um, what's happening politically. Um, and they are about um, climate change and they are about the ha um, housing and economic dis disparities. They should say, we're fed up with all of this. Yeah. I mean, we saw a, a glimmer of hope from the young people from the um, the school shooting in Florida, I think. Mm, Parkside. But, yeah, but they didn't. Um, uh, they didn't attract enough diversity, and I'm not just talking about diversity of color. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't have a sustained plan. But I think the Black Lives Matter is much more diverse along lots of different uh, dimensions. And I think they have an opportunity to, uh, to do more. All right. Thanks a lot, Beverly, for, for being on. I'm going to just I have one, one final question. 
No, you I, said you, you said you had two, then you had four. I, I thought seven. I thought of one more. Just a short question, really easy. Um, how do you want me to include this on my timesheet? <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can. You're smart enough to figure that out. You were smart enough to get me to do this. All right. I'm not, uh, gonna give you, I'm not gonna give you all the answers. All right, maybe just bill it under the account for the federal government. Well, the federal government could benefit from, from listening to the conversation. All right, I'll, I'll just bill Roland Cases, our world sponsor. Shout out to Roland Cases. Uh, thanks, Bev. Uh, we really, I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I mean, and I, I'd love to also have you back sometime too and yeah